Hey, this is Brian Golden. I am the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast and thank you for taking the time to listen. And I just want to let you know if you are in the greater Tampa Bay area, we would love to have you join us at one of our gatherings. And here's the thing about Centerpoint. Our vision is really simple. We want to be an alternative to church as usual for all people. And that just means we want this to be a safe place that welcomes everybody, doesn't matter what your background is or really where you're at on your faith journey. And so if you want any more information about our gatherings, go to our website at centerpointfl.org. And then most importantly, whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just in that place of investigating faith, I really hope today's message encourages you and really helps you to find life and freedom in Jesus. Hey, what's up, CC? Welcome to Centerpoint Church, wherever you are joining us. And apparently I sent in one too many thank you videos uh, that they had to cram in there. But for real, give our bridge builders some love if you're watching via any of our platforms. We have a few people in the room who are socially distanced. You don't need to email us, but we are so grateful for everybody that continues to serve during this season, continues to give during this season. And I love to give shout outs. I wanna give one specifically. I won't uh, share the name. You'll know who I'm talking to, but um, the reach of our church all over the place um, in places you wouldn't even think is just absolutely incredible. And uh, there's somebody in Clearwater, you're finishing a prison sentence right now. And I, I just wanna acknowledge your letter this week. And the line that got me was, even though I've never been able to obviously attend physically, Uh, The line where you said, I've never felt more welcomed and more accepted vicariously in my life. And I just want you to know, um, I am specifically praying for you, and I'm so thankful for what Jesus is doing in your life. Thanks for listening via radio. And so I just want to remind everybody of um, the impact that you're having as you give and as you serve. So uh, real quick, next weekend, we begin a brand new series called Wish You Were Here. And um, we're going to team teach this series, which means there's going to be three different communicators, and we're going to lead off with Bradley Hamilton, our new um, student pastor. And so this is not like the typical, like this, you cram in the student pastor, and then you go on vacation, and that like, you need to be here. Um, actually, you can't be here. You need to be here in your living room to watch next week as we begin this series, because it's going to be incredible, and I can't wait for you to hear from Bradley. And so uh, we say it a lot, like invite somebody to come watch with you. Uh, that invite has the power to change so much for people. I think this series is going to help a lot, of, a lot of individuals. So next week, wish you were here. Make sure that you are here for that. So um, we are in part five of this series, The Messy Middle, and um, it, it's had somewhat of a common thread, even if you don't think it has, but it's completely moved in a different direction uh, from last week now to this week. And so this week, um, I, I'm kind of going to continue the conversation that we had last week. And in fact, we're a part of a network called North Point Network with about 90 other churches. And so um, this is actually a shared thing where we, con- congla- um, what, what am I looking for? We uh, collaborated, that's the word, and uh, are kind of, there's multiple churches, dozens of churches, a part of our network that are kind of coming around this subject today. And so I, I want to end the messy middle talking about this whole idea of injustice and what our country is walking through. And us as a network really wanted to talk about What is the way forward for us as churches? Now, real quick, let me just give you a backdrop real fast. The messy middle, the idea behind that series is the whole idea of we're waiting for something to change. And so it's very relevant to what we're walking through right now. And here's what we said about waiting for anything to change or or being in the middle between where things were and where you're hoping ultimately um, they will go is that the, the middle can be messy. Like it's the middle when we're waiting for something, especially when it's difficult, where we tend to doubt God. 
It's a lot of times in the middle where it gets messy, where we can lose hope, we can lose contentment. A lot of times we can get angry at God. You can start to reach for old habits and old behaviors under the pressure of whatever it is that you're walking through, but it is just messy. Now, here's how I think it relates to what we're walking through as a country right now, because we're in a place where we are looking for something to change. And anytime you're trying to create any kind of change, it is messy. It's messy to acknowledge what needs to change. It's messy to try to confront how to change it. But the whole thing is messy. It is not clean and it is complicated. But we believe that there is this ethic that ultimately is introduced by Jesus and it's why the church should lead the way in the conversation around injustice and the fact that everybody is made in the image of God. There's this narrative in the New Testament that is maybe one of the most confusing narratives on the surface where Jesus hears about his best friend Lazarus. We looked at this weeks ago. Lazarus was on the the brink of death. He was not doing well physically. And his guys, Jesus' guys thought that Jesus was gonna rush there to heal him and he doesn't. Jesus ends up showing up late and he gets to Lazarus' home and Lazarus is already dead. In fact, he's been dead for three days. And Jesus immediately tells those in the, uh, the immediate vicinity, like, let's go to his tomb. And so they take Jesus to his tomb and there's this dramatic moment that maybe you know well, Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who's been dead for three days. The scripture says that Jesus stops And he pauses. I think maybe one of the most powerful verses in all the scripture, Jesus just weeps. And he enters into the pain of everybody around him without providing a solution. He just just feels it. And he just enters into it. In fact, it was so emotional that those around him remarked how moving the moment was. And John records it in John 11, 36, when people around Jesus said, see how he loved him? how he loved Lazarus. Here's the thing. I think at some level, this is that moment for our country where we pause and we enter into pain and grief and hurt. We pause in the pain of the black community. We pause in the pain of George Floyd and everybody surrounded and affected. We pause into the pain of Ahmaud Arbery. We pause into the pain of Brianna Taylor. We pause into the pain of those who've been affected and lost businesses because of looting. We, we pause for spouses of law enforcement with great records who are serving valiantly with all of the uncertainty and all of the fear that they're experiencing. But it is that moment, I think, for our nation in many ways where we have to stop and pause and we have to connect all of those losses to the current of racism that has plagued our country from the very beginning. And I think before we post stuff and before we casually throw up another Facebook post and share something on Instagram that we need to stop and before we offer any of our solutions, we need to just weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and just pause like Jesus and enter into their pain. And come on, at every other level of life, you kind of know this, that that is the place where empathy is actually born. And in a lot of cases, that's actually the place where solutions are born. So here's the thing. Over the last couple of weeks, I've heard this phrase over and over and over again. But over and over, I've just heard this like, I'm so sad. Like, I'm just so sad. I'm so sad. I'm so sad. But I just would challenge that a little bit. I don't think sad is enough. 
Because sad is always at some level disconnected and impersonal. Like we can be sad about lots of different things that don't really affect us at a deep level. This is way beyond sad because come on, our black brothers and sisters, they're not sad. In a lot of cases, they're angry, they're hurt, they're dealing with stuff at a deep level that goes way beyond just this disconnected, sad emotion because sad just tends to be far away. In fact, a guy by the name of um, Dr. Martin Luther King that you know really, really well, and I don't want to overquote, but this quote is, I think, so relevant to the situation. He says this, injustice anywhere, and you've heard this probably, is a threat to justice everywhere, which means just feeling sad is not enough. And then he says this, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. And that is more relevant now than ever before because what happens in Minnesota is seen in New Mexico, in the UK, and all over the world. And then he says this at the end of this quote, whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. Which means there's no, there's no them. There's just us and it's bigger than sad and it goes deeper than sad. And, and especially as I look at my, my friends who are black and brown, who I know really, really well, I have deep friendships with. If I'm going to call them friends and that does not move me, then I am a hypocrite. So here's what I would say, just to acknowledge kind of the elephant in the room. This subject is a minefield for our church and it is not a minefield for every church. Because churches tend to roll one of two directions. In many cases, they are extreme conservative. Everybody kind of has the same views. It's a, it's a huge kind of homogeneous echo chamber or it's super liberal. And so you can just kind of throw out red meat and everybody's gonna clap and amen and everybody's gonna agree and it's gonna be amazing. That is not the case with our church. No matter what I say, there's gonna be a large group of people are gonna be like, I don't know, because from the very beginning, our church has been so diverse in terms of religious, irreligious. We have people from every political side imaginable, more than you probably even realize. And so we are all over the map, and increasingly, we are multi-ethnic and multi-racial. So this is, this is a minefield for our church because of the fact that we represent so many different ideas from longtime Jesus followers to agnostic and atheists in every other category that you can imagine. But here's what you already know, I bet, is that solutions and truth are rarely found in the extremes anyway. In fact, Dr. King, I think, modeled that really, really well. It is always in the messy middle where things get real. And you hear from different sides and no longer are you in an echo chamber any longer where you just get with people who think like you, look like you, affirm all of your beliefs, and you just talk back and forth to each other. It's in the messy middle where the circles collide, that change happens, where truth is confronted, and a lot of times uncomfortable facts are confronted. To quote Andy Stanley, I think this is so accurate. Facts are not fair, by the way, and facts don't care. Facts are not fair and facts do not care. Like here's just a couple uncomfortable facts. In our country, in large part, many white people fear black men. That's unfair. Like in our country, um, and in most cases of what I just described, the vast majority, there is no personal connection to their fear. They have actually no personal experience. In fact, as you sit down with friends, what you will experience is what many call the, 
the fearful gaze that many black men have experienced from white men and white women. That's not fair. And facts aren't fair and facts do not care. And then on the other side of it, many African Americans in our country do not trust the criminal justice system. They don't trust police. And that's not fair. And that's not fair to police officers with spotless records who, again, many of my friends, maybe many of your friends who have served heroically and done incredible things. It's not fair. And facts are not fair and facts do not care. And then the other side of it is this, is while for many white people, their fear is almost never connected to personal experience, that is not the case with the African-American community. In many cases, we fear what could happen, you fear what has happened. And your fear is wrapped up in a reality and is wrapped up in experience of what you have experienced and what other people around you have experienced. And that's just not fair. And here's the thing I would say, statistics and data and me preaching a message is not going to change any cultural reality right? Like telling the black community how often the criminal justice system has worked for them does not change anything. It does not change any cultural realities or, or, or throwing out things like how quickly a police officer was fired and then arrested. That doesn't actually change anything. That doesn't turn the tide of any cultural realities or sitting down with another white person and explaining to them how many times they've been ripped off by other white people doesn't change anything in terms of their mindset. There is no amount of statistics, there is no amount of data, there there is no amount of messages that are going to change those cultural realities. Just like if you have a fear of flying. I can share with you all the statistics and data in the world about how it is more dangerous to get on I-4 than it is to hop on a plane and fly in the air, but does that take away your fear of flying? It does nothing to your fear. Because the reality is this, facts rarely replace fear, and fear, or facts, never builds trust. Facts rarely replace fear and facts never build trust. And I just wanna say this to us as a church and as a global community with people watching all over the place, even outside of this country, is that the only thing that can replace deep-seated fear is experience. We are not gonna law our way into change. We are not gonna talk our way into change. We are not gonna message our way into change. We must experience our way into change. That is the only thing that can break the power, that can begin to change viewpoints, that can begin to move the needle and actually begin to change cultural realities. A guy by the name of John Blake, I started to reference him before. He wrote an article in Atlanta newspaper that I think is so powerful. And this is the very long title of the article, actually. This isn't the article, this is just the title. He said this, there is one epidemic, this was written about a week ago, that we may never find a vaccine for. Fear of black men in public spaces. And then he goes on to say this. I believe another way to fight fear of black men is through exposure, Until more white people actually live among and befriend black people, that fear will persist. And you know that, right? Like if you've you've met white men and women who they have eradicated their fear, it has happened through relationship. As you look where police have incredible relationships with people around in the community, it's because they have built trust and connected in community on a relational level. All of us know this. Like a week or two ago when we watched police officers link arms with National Guard, it was powerful. 
Because what it communicated to people wherever you were at was what ultimately breaks your heart breaks our heart. The only way forward is not gonna be facts, it's not gonna be data, it's not gonna be more information. It is going to be by experiencing our way forward, which takes incredible courage. But Jesus has so much to say about this. So here's the question that I wanna talk about for a couple minutes and then I will be done. And the question is just this, and it's not original with me, but if we are going to experience our way forward, this is the question for every single one of us to ask specifically as followers of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, legit, I don't really know the way forward. I do know that even everything I've said already is enough right there to grapple with that could begin to change some things if we took it seriously. But I'm telling you, this is why I think the church has to be so vocal and so loud. It is not a right thing. It is not a left thing. It is not a political thing. It is a Jesus thing. And I think this is the question for Jesus followers or if you ever embrace Jesus and if you're watching right now and you are skeptical, if you've got questions, if you walked away from faith a long time ago, in a lot of ways, our church was built with you in mind. I love that you are watching and leaning in. But here's the question for us. To quote Andy Stanley, how do people who do not look like you experience you? How do people who do not look like you, not what you think, People do not know what you think, or they are not changed by what you think. They are changed by what you do, not what you believe. People are not changed by what you believe. They are changed by what you do, not what do you, what do you, uh, what do you think, what do you feel, what you believe, but literally the question has to be, how do people who do not look like you experience, not feel, not believe, how do they experience you? Or here's a better way and maybe a more personal way to ask it. How should people who don't look like you experience you? How should people who do not look like you experience you? And if you're a Jesus follower, Jesus already answered that question. Jesus has already made that really, really clear. And over and over again in the New Testament, you see this phrase, the law of Christ, the law of Christ. Now, let me, this is a whole nother message, so I can't go too deep. This is not talking about the Ten Commandments. In fact, this isn't talking about anything in the Old Testament. You could fulfill all of the Ten Commandments and still be a racist. It's why Jesus changed the game in the New Testament and said, I'm actually bringing something that's gonna replace the whole Old Testament. It's gonna be something from the inside out and there's not gonna be any loopholes or workarounds. It's gonna be far more demanding. Just ask Paul. Paul was the chief among Pharisees, kept all of the 10 commandments, was a racist. He hated Gentiles. He tried to destroy followers of the way and then he encountered Jesus and everything changed. And Jesus, the night before his death, maybe you know this scenario really well, he's sitting at a table with his guys, his followers, his tribe. He's hours away from being crucified and he, he lays down what would be the way forward for every Jesus follower and for this new movement. And basically in that moment, he says, there was an old covenant, the Hebrew scriptures, that has an expiration date. It's about to end tonight. Now there's gonna be a new covenant with a new command and a new ethic and it's gonna change the world and everything is gonna hinge on this, all of the law and the prophets. And he said this, a new command I'm gonna give you guys and everybody that comes after you. Love one another. And these guys are like, that's not new. And Jesus is like, Shh, shut up, I'm not done. Love one another. That's not actually in the transcript of that night, but I'm assuming. A new command I give you, love one another. And then Jesus says this, and it is so terrifyingly clear. As I have loved you, 
And he could have said, and as I am about to love you, you're gonna find out in hours how far this will go. As I have loved you, so you must. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is not if you feel it. I'm just telling you to do it. I want you to verb this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then maybe you know the ending. He says, by this, guys, if you forget everything else when you leave this room, and you probably will, by this one thing, the world is gonna know that you are my followers and disciples. How should people who don't look like you experience you? Paul comes along later, former racist, now follower of Jesus, who's planting churches all over the Mediterranean rim is becoming the single-handedly the greatest force for the movement of Jesus. Everything has changed for him. And he sits down with his whole perspective and he writes this. This is the practical outflow of, okay, so here's how you do this specifically in regard to people who are not like you. And he says this to a church in Galatia. If you wanna know what it looks like to love others the way Jesus has loved you, it's uncomfortable, but this is what it looks like. Galatians 6, 2, I want you to do this. I want you to carry one another's burdens. I want you to carry one another's burdens. No longer is this an isolated, me and God, vertical relationship. Take my sacrifice to the temple, do my thing. God, are we cool? I even sang you a worship song, recited a verse in the Torah. I'm gonna go my way, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna do whatever I want, treat people however I want. Jesus is like, those days are over. Paul's like, those days are over. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to love others the way Jesus has loved you. I want you to carry one another's burdens. And then he says this at the end of the verse. And in this way, you are gonna fulfill the law of Christ. Like this is it. And come on, here's what we know because imperfectly, you've done this at some point. You've done it with a family member. In a lot of cases, you've done it with somebody who's maybe exactly like you, but you've carried somebody's burdens. And what happens when you carry somebody else's burdens is generally what divides us diminishes. And what unites us starts to surface. Isn't that true? And you've made all kinds of judgments and you've had imaginary conversations and, and you've come up with all kinds of scenarios and then you get up under to go, I'm gonna carry this, I'm gonna feel this, I'm gonna help you with this, I'm gonna do some heavy lifting with this, I'm not gonna run the other direction and just give you a smile and I'm praying for you. Like, I'm, I'm coming to help you carry this thing. Feel this thing, get up under this thing. If you've ever done that with somebody, you know what that does. It changes how you feel. In a lot of cases, it changes how you think. You begin to have more trust. You begin to have more understanding. And all of a sudden, the circles start to come together. And when you get up under somebody else's burdens, you will find common ground where you didn't realize there was common ground. And Paul's like, this is what I want you to do. And specifically, if you're a Jesus follower, this is the thing that trumps everything else. Culture is important. Race is important. Ethnicity is important. It's part of the diversity that God has created that brings glory to him. It is incredible. The uniqueness of it was God's design, but all of that is secondary to this. And Paul's saying, when you begin to really follow Jesus, 
This becomes the chief aim of your life is no matter what our differences are, no matter what our cultural backgrounds are, no matter what our religious backgrounds are, no matter how divided we may seem, when I begin to move in your direction to go, not because I feel it, not because I understand you, not because I have all of the answers, but because this is exactly what Jesus has done for me when I did not deserve it. So I'm gonna carry your burdens the way Jesus has carried my burdens. I'm gonna come up under, I'm gonna lift some of the weight. I'm gonna feel what you feel. It's not gonna be your problem. It's gonna be our problem. And when I begin to do that, something happens. And Paul's like, that becomes chief among everything and everything else becomes secondary. You are part of the kingdom of God. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a son and a daughter. And this is your marching orders in terms of how to follow Jesus in your culture. I want you specifically with those who are nothing like you to carry one another's burdens. And listen, we struggle with this. The church struggles with this, not even just from a racial ethnic perspective. We struggle with this with people who don't believe what we believe. We've created insulary little country clubs for decades and generations. And as soon as you believe what I believe, as soon as you join my echo chamber, then you're invited in. But until you do or until you get your crap together, you're not invited in. And Paul and Jesus and the New Testament authors say that is not the way of the gospel. I'm gonna carry your burden. So let me make this really awkwardly practical. And this is not original with me, but I think this, this is what it looks like. And I just wanna speak to the church and all those of you who are investigating and listening and leaning in, I'm so glad you are. So you can pick and choose what you wanna take from this. But our church, not just locally, but globally, I just wanna to talk to our CC fam for a second. I think these are the two way forwards to make this awkwardly practical. The first is this, being a non-racist is not the goal. We've gotta shift our perspective. We gotta shift our goal, we gotta shift what the benchmark is, but simply saying, I, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. Not being a racist is not the goal. You need to be anti-racism. Our churches need to be anti-racism. The way you are anti-anything else, the way you are anti-child abuse. You don't walk down the street to see a child being abused or hit and go, I'm not a child abuser. You get involved, you raise your voice, you do anything you can to stop it because that's what we do when we realize an injustice. We are anti, like in my home, like we're anti-lie, anti-disrespectful. I'm not like, well, I'm, you, like, you shouldn't do that. We are anti, like we have to address it. My kids lie a lot because they need Jesus. They're disrespectful a lot, they're good kids, but it's just the nature of where we're at. And so I'm gonna address it, I'm gonna speak out. I'm not gonna be silent because that's what you do. And I'm just saying as a church, Non-racist cannot be the goal. Anti-racism has got to be the goal where we call it out and we say, I am going to carry your burdens. And this is not just a problem for the black community, the brown community, all those who've been discriminated against. This is our problem. And we have to speak up, have a voice because we are followers of Jesus. And I'll just give you this warning. When you do that, just like if you do it in any other area of your life, when you do that, in many cases, you may discover some very disturbing things. Because when you start to carry somebody else's burdens, and when you start to understand differently, 
And when you start to empathize in a different way, all of a sudden, sometimes some subtle threads of what you did not previously see start to show up in your mirror. And I think if we embrace this to move from just non-racist to anti-racist that for many of us, because this started in the Garden of Eden and there's been a thread throughout all humanity and all generations that there is stuff in us that we have blind spots to and we don't even see. Can I just say this real quick? This is off my notes, but for us as, as a church, and I'm talking about capital T, capital C church, we have enough in our church history over the last so many hundreds of years, we should have extraordinary humility. We justified civil rights by quoting verses out of Exodus. We should have extraordinary humility. And when we begin to carry someone else's burdens, a lot of times you start to see something in the mirror that you did not see. And I'm just gonna tell you, this is truth. Racism will not be rooted out until we call it out. But when we call it out, it will begin to be rooted out starting in our churches. So non-racist is not the goal. Anti-racist has to be the goal if we're following Jesus. And then the second thing is this. Proximity is not the same as friendship. Proximity is not the same as friendship. Knowing people who don't look like you is not the same as being friends with them. James Clear said this. James Clear wrote an extraordinary book, Atomic Habits. And he, he says this statement that I think is so powerful. He says this, facts don't change our minds. Friendships do. Facts do not change our minds. Friendships do. And come on, Jesus followers, again, nothing characterized Jesus' life better than this. Like Jesus, it gets a lot of airplay that Jesus moved in the direction of the poor and the marginalized. And, the, you know, we love to highlight all of that, the prostitutes, the, all of that's true. But Jesus moved in the direction of everybody. Like people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And apparently Jesus loved hanging with them. It made them feel really, really comfortable. And, and many times would pick them out of the crowd to the Pharisees' dismay. Zacchaeus, we're going to your house. Matthew, we're going to your house. He had rich and he had poor. He had religious and political zealots. He had tax collectors. He had women when nobody invited women to join your group in the first century. He had every part of every group imaginable, the most eclectic gathering that you could ever think of. And they were all there sitting there day after day listening to Jesus. And they didn't have anything in common other than something about this guy is legit. And one day when Jesus is talking about this, he looks at that eclectic group, men, women, traders, poor, rich, religious, irreligious. And he says this, and it's so powerful in John 15, 15. John, his best friend, records it. Jesus said to all these guys, hey, guys, I have called you friends. Like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the guys? I mean, for some of them, they're like, eh, of course you do. We're, but there's others in the crowd that have never been accepted in their life. And Jesus said, hey, guys, I have called you friends. And he says this, verse 16, and you didn't choose me. I chose you. Like, literally, Jesus, Savior of the world. I decided to move in your direction and despite you and in spite of you and the fact that you guys don't have anything in common with each other, I have called you my friends. Here's the reality. And this reality, I'll just tell you, has changed my life over the last about four years of moving outside of 
traditional groups and listening to people who are nothing like me, who don't hold any of my views, or, or just simply don't look like me. But until we listen to people who experience the world different than we do, we will never be able to carry their burdens. I'm going to say that one more time for those in the back. Until we have deep, meaningful friendships and relationships with people who see the world different than us, we will never be able to carry their burdens. And we will not be able to fulfill the law of Christ of loving others the way that Christ has loved us. And we will just end up sad and we will end up mad. And it's why a mentor told me this years ago, and I think it's some of the best advice. It's why as followers of Jesus, we should be the most confident, not arrogant, but confident, willing to listen not defensive, and we should always be learners first and save our criticism for later. We should always be students first and critics second because as long as you are content with proximity, well, I know somebody, well, I have a friend, I have a guy at work and we get along great, I'm always nice to him. That is not the same as deep friendship, sitting in living rooms, listening to stories, having friends cry over your dinner table, that's a different level. That'll change you. But until we get out of this place of being content with proximity, we will discount everything that doesn't fit perfectly into our own flawed worldview. Proximity, church, I, I wish I could make, it's not enough. And I'm gonna say this as lovingly and graciously as I can for so many of us who've had opinions first and have decided to be students second. And we don't have a single person in our sphere of friendships that don't look like us and believe what we believe. That's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. So how should people who don't look like you experience you? And as our worship team begins to come and get ready, gets ready to end out on this final song, I just want to challenge you. And I know some of you, this hits you at different places and you're nervous and would you just freaking get over and stop talking about this? And I, I get all of that from every angle and every direction. But can we just agree on this for some of you? Would you, would you begin to make the shift from non-racist to anti-racist? Would we fight for this as a church? Would we call out injustice? Would we start to move in the directions of our black brothers and sisters and say, I wanna to get to know you, I wanna to listen to you, I'm gonna pull up a seat beside you when we're not social distancing anymore, but I'm gonna to begin to develop relationships? And come on, I don't mean to come on too strong and I say this with grace, but will we stop with, well, I just love everybody and would you go love somebody that does not look like you? In other words, would you follow Jesus? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Because by the way, in the first century culture, that was the ethic, hate your enemies. But Jesus said, in my kingdom, it's an upside down kingdom. Everything you knew is about to die. And I'm introducing something extraordinary and counterintuitive, but it has the power to change the world. I want you, Jesus followers, I want you to love your enemy. 
I want you to move aggressively in the direction of people who do not look anything like you. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. And then you will be children of your father in heaven. In essence, you will be most like your heavenly father. So let's do this. You're his kids. They're his kids. And then he says, if you love those who love you, what reward are you going to get? Come on. Tax collectors and sinners do that. Everybody does that. You don't need to know Jesus to do that. Now, this is an extraordinary other kind of different level kind of love that can only emanate from somebody like Jesus who put it on display. And then he ends with this, and it's somewhat confusing. And he's not saying be perfect, but his point is that this is what maturity looks like. And if you wanna know what it looks like to get as close as you can to the heart of your heavenly father, this is it. And so he ends with be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Meaning embrace this, embrace this idea. Because love for God Contrary to what many of you grew up with, where you could just sit and go through the motions and do the flannel graph and read stories and raise your hands and go your way. And you could treat people however you wanted and God was cool with you. No, no, not in the Jesus movement of the first century and in the New Testament. Love for God is now authenticated and demonstrated by how you love other people. I was reading this recently, literally this last week, I was finishing a book and it made this statement and it hit me because it's true. Like, I don't, this may be disconcerting for you, I don't always know what to believe. I mean, I know certain things because I, I feel like there is so much historical evidence and I've spent so many years in that that I'll, I'll die for it. I believe that Jesus walked out of a grave alive. I think the, the evidence in history is overwhelming. If you're a skeptic, you should just start there, not with Noah and set literal seven days of creation. Like, did Jesus rise from the grave? I think the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. There's so much in the scriptures that I'd give my life for because I've spent so much time. But there's a lot of other stuff that I'm not really sure. There's, there's moments where I'm not really sure. I mean, the reality, just this is 10 years in as a pastor, a lot of my worldview has changed. Like who Jesus is, Jesus hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. The fact that Jesus died and rose again, that hasn't changed. My worldview has changed. I see things differently. I had kids and they changed everything. I've walked through tragedy and it gave me a new perspective. I've rethought things. And hopefully that, that's the case with all of us. Hopefully I, I, that won't stop for me. I mean, Paul said it like right now we see in part, but one day we'll see in full. We, we haven't arrived. Nobody, none of us have cornered the market on truth or on Jesus. But here's what I almost always know the answer to the question to. What does love demand of me? That question fills the gaps. That question gives me a way forward when it's a little gray and I'm not really sure. That question lets me know how to respond to somebody that I don't understand, I may not agree with, I feel like I, I, I'm a little nervous by this, but here's what love demands of me in the moment. And all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, everything that you find in the first half of your scripture, all of that was now replaced with a single command. I want you to love other people the way I loved you. I want you to carry their burdens. I want you to move in their direction. I want you to empathize with them. I want you to move, to, to be patient, to be kind. 
What does love demand of me? And here's the reality, knowing that my views will change, that my worldview will morph, that I don't have all the answer, is that that question and what Jesus commanded of us is not limited by my inexperience or my lack of insight. It does not limit my ability, no matter how limited my insight is, to love other people, to carry other people's burdens, and to put other people first. What does love demand of me? What does love demand of you? That is terrifyingly clear. And so what should somebody who is not like you, how should they experience you? How should they experience the church? How are they experiencing the church? And the invitation as I close is this, from Jesus himself. Church, follow me. And if you do, maybe one day you'll lose your fear of flying. Like maybe one day it'll silence irrational fears. And and maybe one day we'll see men and women and fathers rather than just uniforms and badges. And perhaps one day in all the chaos of blue lights and sirens, we'll see somebody's son. Somebody's little girl. And maybe in that moment it will dawn on us, specifically as followers of Jesus in the church, that whatever affects one of us directly affects all of us indirectly because we are made in the image of God. Would you pray with me wherever you're at? Jesus, thank you for your patience with me. my limited insight, my limited understanding. The fact that in so many seasons of my life, you continue to disciple me and show me the way forward. But I thank you that my limited insight does not limit my ability to do what you've called me to do, the thing that is most important. And Lord, I just wanna take the baton again, to lead well, to love others the way that you've loved me, to carry the burdens of other people who do not look like me. To move from not just non-racist to anti-racist, to move closest to the heart of my heavenly father, to speak out against injustice, to feel what others feel, to weep when others weep, to be with my brothers and sisters at every point along the journey. And I pray as a church globally, and I pray as a church, as Centerpoint Church, wherever we are dispersed all over this country and beyond, that, Lord, we would we'd be a part of leading the way. This is what the Jesus movement was designed to do. Lord, I pray that we would stop settling for proximity and what has been so comfortable for us. And we would become students first and critics second. And Lord, we would move into spaces where we develop deep relationships with people, nothing like us in such a way that it changes us. It changes our perspective. It changes how we feel. And God, 
There's moments where we are tempted to lose hope, but we have hope because we know in the first century where they faced way greater odds than we are facing in this moment. This one idea and this one ethic toppled an empire and changed the world and it can change the world again. And so God, do what you wanna do in us wherever we're at on the spectrum from angry to indifferent to apathetic to moved by emotion that Lord, we would move beyond those feelings and we would ask the question, what does someone who is not like us, how do they experience us? And maybe more importantly, what does love demand of me? And what does love demand of us? And we pray this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.